please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Last week, we kicked off our summer practice of preaching the gospel. If you were not here, please go back and listen to the podcast as we kind of set down the theological foundation or a working definition of the gospel that is kind of our lodestar for the weeks to come. And when you arrive at Matthew 19, please stand for the reading of Scripture. We stand to honor God with our bodies, with all that we are, and to honor the story that we're about to read as more than just a story from the ancient world, but as Scripture. Here's Laura. Matthew 19, 16 through 30, the rich young man. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, <clears throat> what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, Look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Thank you. Take a seat. It's 1985, Super Bowl Sunday, two days before the launch of the Macintosh computer by Steve Jobs and Apple. The Macintosh, those of you that were alive at the time, was a leap forward in digital evolution. It was a personal computer the size of a box, not a mainframe the size of a house. It had a visual interface. It had video games on it. It had a mouse. Who, who named it a mouse, by the way? All revolutionary at the time. Now, they hire Ridley Scott, the genius behind Alien and Blade Runner, to direct the commercial. It's a play on George Orwell's famous novel, 1984, and it casts IBM, at the time, the global kind of computer monopoly, as, the, as Big Brother. The brainwashed masses are all in gray, the thought police's screen are all in IBM's blue, and then running through the Stalinist mob is a young, beautiful woman wearing the bright colors of Apple straight out of California, throwing her sledgehammer to smash the blue screen. It then ends with the line, on January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Now, Apple's board of directors, Backstory, and their CEO, Scully, hated the ad so much they tried to sell back the commercial slots to CBS and eat the cost of production. But they could only offload one of the slots, so in the end they just let it run, and it became an overnight sensation, striking a nerve in the ideological cold war between the West and Russia, between capitalism and communism. It was voted commercial of the decade by Advertising Age and is arguably the most famous Super Bowl ad of all time. Walter Isaacson and his biography of Jobs basically says it is, that ad alone is what launched Apple into the stratosphere 
there and gave its brand identity a magnetic force that would attract millions upon millions of young creatives the world over for decades to come. And what was Apple's slogan in those early days, of which that commercial is a great case study? Think different. Hire Ridley Scott to direct a Super Bowl commercial for a personal computer. Think different. Last week, we kicked off our summer practice of preaching the gospel with a very basic question, what is the gospel? Step one last week was to look at the gospel Jesus himself preached, because as we said, if we don't start with the gospel that Jesus preached, we could easily end up with a gospel that Jesus did not preach, which I would argue is exactly where we are in the Western American church. Mark's one-line summary of Jesus' gospel, that was our text from last week, is, quote, the time is at hand, the kingdom of God has arrived. That's the gospel according to Jesus. And as I alluded to last week, the gospel that Jesus preached sounds very different from the gospel that I grew up hearing. So step two this morning is to run a compare and contrast between the gospel Jesus preached and some of the most popular summaries of the gospel in the American church. And this compare and contrast model, I hesitate to use it, but it was used by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to push back on interpretations of scripture that were off base. You have heard it said, common interpretation of the Old Testament in his day, but I say to you, Jesus' interpretation. Now, the obvious goes without saying, I am not Jesus of Nazareth. But this morning is my very human attempt to follow that model and do the same with what I believe are four of the most common misinterpretations of the gospel in our time. Like Scully or Apple's board, for some of you, this will make you a little bit nervous to think different. But I think of Dallas Willard, whose book, The Divine Conspiracy, if you've ever made it through, it's a bit of tough sledding. But it's basically about what he calls the gospels of sin management versus the gospel of the kingdom and discipleship to Jesus. He said, quote, we must do nothing less than engage in a radical rethinking of the Christian concept of salvation. Now, in, concept, uh, in context, he doesn't mean a radical rethinking of the orthodox, historic Christian concept of salvation. He means the late, modern, popular one that a lot of us grew up with. You see, our understanding of the gospel is based on our understanding of salvation itself. What does it even mean to be saved? Does it mean go to heaven when you die, or have your sins justified in the legal court of heaven, or something else? How you define salvation will determine how you define the gospel and vice versa and will determine the trajectory of your soul. It is my conviction that much of what American Christians call the gospel is not necessarily heretical or even wrong, but it's not the gospel of Jesus. Here's N.T. Wright, one of the best living theologians in the world. I am perfectly comfortable with what people normally mean when they say the gospel. I just don't think it is what Paul means. In other words, he's a little cheeky there. In other words, I am not denying that the usual meanings are things that people ought to say, to preach about, to believe. I simply wouldn't use the word gospel to denote those things. We need, and here's where I'm sure we all agree, to measure our preaching of the gospel against Jesus' preaching of the gospel. He is the ultimate teacher and the litmus test for the gospel. And Jesus, as we just read, is full of surprises. If your Bible is still open to Matthew 19, in verse 16, that opening question from the young man of privilege, teacher or rabbi, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, for those of us who care about preaching the gospel, this is the dream question, right? I mean, this is what we secretly kind of hope our coworker or our friend or Aunt Sally or whatever will ask us, you know, John Mark, so uh, tell me, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Well, let me tell you, Aunt Sally, or whatever. And based on my church experience, and I know a ton of you did not grow up in church, but a lot of you did, and if your experience was anything like mine, I know what Jesus is supposed to say here. He's supposed to say something like, do. You don't need to do anything. That's religion. That's man earning his way to God. That's works-based righteousness. That's not the gospel. I'm about to do it all for you on the cross. All you need to do is believe. But does Jesus say that? 
No, in fact, his reply is quasi-heretical, and it's, or at least it's a bit of a head-scratcher. Basically, what does he do? He tells the man to keep the Ten Commandments. All these I have kept, the man says in verse 20. What do I still lack? Interesting. Jesus doesn't disagree that the man has kept the Ten Commandments. And both the man and Jesus are aware that there is something more than the Ten Commandments, that whatever salvation is, it's not less than morality, but it's a lot more than morality. Then Jesus tells him to sell all his possessions and come apprentice under him. Now, that's just not what Jesus is supposed to say. That is theologically, in my opinion, and pastorally malpractice. That's dangerous. You could really get down a weird road with that Jesus. You have to be careful around Jesus. He will just mess up your good theology. Now, here's a little backstory to make sense of Jesus' reply. The man, contrary to popular opinion, is not asking, how do I go to heaven when I die? For sure, as a first century Jew, he would have had some concept of life after death and maybe even a place called the heavens with the living God. But first century Jews, as we said last week, and again, if you're not here, please listen to that podcast, were waiting on pens and needles for the Messiah, a way of saying the long-awaited king of Israel and of the world from God himself to arrive and usher in the kingdom of God, the reign of God, not only over Israel, but over the world, not only over Jews, but a new Jew plus Gentile family, a whole new order of love and peace and justice. The man And Jesus is clearly, either he is that Messiah or at least he's claiming to be that Messiah. The man is asking, what do I need to do to make sure that I'm a part of that kingdom with you, Jesus? In our language, that I'm on the right side of history, both now and forever. Now, part of the problem is the phrase eternal life is notoriously difficult to translate into English. I hear the word eternal, and I just think of life without end, life forever and ever and ever. And it's not that it doesn't really mean that, it's that that's just not the primary meaning. A growing number of scholars argue that a much better translation is the life of the age to come. Brenda Klinge, in her book, Image of Salvation in the New Testament, writes, eternal life is primarily qualitative rather than quantitative. More about quality than quantity. Eternal describes the kind of life one has in Christ. Case in point, the one time that eternal life is defined in the New Testament, it is by Jesus himself, so we must pay very close attention. John 17, 3, very clear, blatant definition. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life in Jesus' mind is knowing the Father and the Son, not knowing about God the way that I know about Japan or something, but I've never been there, but knowing God the way that I know my wife or my son or my best friend from personal experience. It's participating in the life of God himself, in the inner life of the Trinity, the love between the Father and the Son. John Orberg writes, to know God is to live in a rich, moment-by-moment, gratitude-soaked, participatory life together. And notice that this, in this story that we just read, eternal life, verse 16, the kingdom of God, verse 23 and verse 24, and salvation, verse 25, are all used interchangeably. Kingdom, salvation, eternal life. That, for me at least, that, that cleared things up the moment I noticed that. It explains why, for those of you that are on the theology nerd side, all four of us, it explains why Jesus' primary message, if you've read through the New Testament, his primary message, at least in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is the kingdom, but in the Gospel of John and in the New Testament as a whole, the kingdom theme is still there. That language is still very much used, but it's no longer the main dominant theme. In Paul's writings, which he's the most prolific author in the New Testament, his primary message is arguably salvation, and the writer John's primary message is eternal life. But here, those 
are all used interchangeably, meaning those are not three different messages. They are three different ways of saying the same thing. Kingdom, salvation, eternal life. As Tim Keller put it, one gospel, many forms. This means that Jesus' summary of the gospel from last week, the kingdom of God is at hand, isn't a one-size-fits-all summary. There's breathing room and a little space for you and me, or for sure for Paul and John, to contextualize the gospel to Greco-Romans and first century Athens or Rome or Corinth and to secular Westerners in 21st century Portland or LA. But still, even if you like have that kind of nuance, Jesus' answer is still, let's be honest, like, sounds a little bit heretical. It sounds like you're not supposed to say that, Jesus. It's just wildly different than what I would expect based on my hearing of the gospel for decades. Could it be that Jesus' view of the gospel and with its salvation and eternal life itself is different than the one that a lot of us grew up with? That is a leading question. It's rhetorical. I would argue, yes. So for all of you Jays and the Myers-Briggs, my people here, you know who you are. You know who you are. Here's the plan. With the rest of our time, I'm going to do my best to articulate the four American Gospels. And what I mean by that is I think the four most common misinterpretations of the Gospel of Jesus in our cultural moment. Two disclaimers before we dive in. One, this is going to feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon. I'm sorry, a new pastor is coming soon. (laughs) Two, the answer to all of your problems. This is going to feel a bit like a critique, and I hate that. I've been racking my brain for weeks and just praying and in search of a better way to do this. Um, and I'm not sure if it's my pre-sabbatical fugue or what, but I just can't think of one. So please hear me. My heart is not, all of these people are wrong, we're right. Not remotely. I am not Jesus, I am very fallible. Other people are not Pharisees or whatever. My heart here is pastoral. I want to pastor you into a life of apprenticeship to Jesus, a life built around those three very simple and beautiful goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he would do if he were you. Because my deep conviction is that the meaning of life is not up and to the right, more success or money or health or wealth or whatever. It is be with Jesus, union with God, to participate and live in an interactive experience with the love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to become like Jesus, become a person of character and emotional maturity as defined by agape, to become a person of love with all that comes with that, wisdom, fortitude, endurance, compassion, kindness, patience, all of that. And third, to do what Jesus did, to make your contribution as a follower of Jesus to our city and our world, to be who God made you to be and do what God has called you to do. And it is my conviction that all four misunderstandings of the gospel stunt people's growth and in their journey toward all three of those goals. My agenda is not to call out other preachers or churches or church traditions. It's to call you to follow Jesus. And whether you disagree wildly or agree with much of what I'm about to say, that is, I think, the common ground beneath all of us. So please extend to me the principle of charity and interpret the next few minutes, and by that I mean the next four hours, in a gracious way. And if I'm off... As the ancients said, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Okay, you ready? On the docket are the four American Gospels, the Evangelical Gospel, the Reformed Gospel, the Prosperity Gospel, and the Social Gospel. Here we go. Number one, the Evangel... You're like, I'm out. You just lost me. Uh, This will not go on the internet. No. Number one, the evangelical gospel, or what some call the simple gospel, or what our theological mentor, Dr. Jerry Bashirs, calls the John 3.16 gospel. Here's a popular level summary. You are a sinner going to hell. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe in him, you will go to heaven when you die. The preaching of this gospel is usually followed by some version of the sinner's prayer or a call to put your hand up at the end of the sermon or to come forward. 
This version of the gospel rose to prominence after World War II in tandem with the rise of what cultural analysts call mass culture, which was kind of this bizarre kind of amalgam of suburbia and industrialization. It was an attempt to simplify the gospel in an appealing and an, into an appealing and accessible message for the masses. Now, a cynical interpretation of that is, you know, to win converts. A more gracious interpretation is it was a generation that far more than our own, took Jesus' call to preach the gospel very seriously. And there are some things it does really well. It's called to personal conversion. One of the four, there's this famous thing called Babington's quadrilateral, one of the four markers of evangelicalism. I take that for granted because I grew up in evangelicalism, but those of you who are baptized as infants or grew up Catholic or mainline, you know there's often no moment ever of commitment to apprentice under Jesus as Lord. Of course, there are all sorts of issues with this gospel as well. Most notably, this is simply nothing close to the gospel Jesus himself preached. If you search for this formulation in the gospels, or I would argue in the New Testament, you simply won't find it. The problem is less that it's wrong and more that it's nowhere close to the full picture. You see, salvation for Jesus isn't about getting you into heaven, but about getting heaven into you. It's not about going up there, but heaven coming down here. It's not just about a transaction, but about a transformation. And not just about the transformation of an individual soul, you or me, but of entire societies of us. It's not just about what God wants to do for us, but what God wants to do in us. It's not just about what happens when we die, but what happens if we live. It's not just about going to church after you are, quote, saved, but about being baptized into the family of God with God. God is your father and other followers of Jesus as your brothers and your sister and your primary familial allegiance. Here's John Ortberg again. In this way of thinking about salvation, the evangelical gospel, the goal is to get from down here to up there, but how to know for sure that you're heading to the good place. It usually involves praying a very specific prayer, believing a set of doctrines about God and other things that make someone a Christian. Ironically, it does not necessarily involve a life of apprenticeship to Jesus. And that's the rub. There is no call to discipleship. Discipleship is something that happens after you get saved, often as an optional add-on for those who are into it, rather than the pathway into salvation. The satirical website, the Babylon Bee, don't ever visit it. It will just make you more cynical. You're already a Portlander. You don't need that. <laughs> But it once had an article entitled, Bible Lacking Sinner's Prayer Return for Full Refund. In it, a fictional disgruntled customer says, quote, I searched the Bible through and through and couldn't find anything about a magic prayer I could lead people to say in order to instantly get them into the kingdom and have them be forever more secure in their eternal salvation no matter what their life looks like afterward. This gospel can easily lead to, again, what Willard called sin management and a kind of salvation by minimum entrance requirements. When people in this vein ask, is so-and-so saved? What which is a very evangelical question to ask. Not a bad question, but what they are really asking is, do they meet the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven when they die? But is that what salvation even is? Salvation isn't like, a, like I was just traveling with Evan, who's somewhere in the room a few days ago, and you know, I was a little jealous because he travels a lot for work. I actually wasn't jealous, I don't ever want this, but he has frequent flyers, you know, like status or whatever, when you travel a lot and you get into the room and you get upgraded to first grade and all this stuff, you know? And is it like that? Is it like you know, a status, mileage status for an airline where you just have to make sure you travel a certain number of miles a year to keep getting the benefits? Or is it more like the New Testament metaphor of marriage? Imagine if I said to my wife, T, okay, what are the minimal requirements you need from me to stay legally married to you? That would, that would, A, that would just not go over well at all if you know my wife. But B, I would just be missing the entire point of what marriage is. Marriage is, I mean, it is a legal status, but that's just like, that's, that's on the edge. That's not the center. It is a relational covenant. In the same way, salvation is about, in Jesus' definition of eternal life, knowing God, participating in the inner life of the Trinity through what the ancients called union with God and the healing of your soul. 
You see, you have to map an idea like the forgiveness of sins. You have to map that onto some kind of a larger story or backdrop. Paul does that in his summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. This is one of the Paul's like most blatant summaries of the gospel. Corinthians 15, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, there's our word, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received... I passed on to you. This is the gospel as, it, as I received, of first importance. And then listen to his summary of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's his summary. According to the scriptures, notice that very important phrase. It's used twice by Paul. Meaning the backstory for Paul to the forgiveness of sins is the scriptures, which is a shorthand way for saying the story of the Old Testament, the story, if you've read it, about the creation of Eden, humans designed to live as kings and queens in the kingdom of God, to co-rule with God over the earth, but in loving community, but who through sin and rebellion against God and resistance of God's rule were shut out of the garden and infected with a kind of spiritual disease. The Greek word for sin, as many of you know, literally means to miss the mark. But that begs the question, what's the mark? Is the mark perfection? Is the mark going to heaven when you die? Who's ever said it was that? What if the mark is union with God? What if it's sharing in the inner life of the love between the Father and the Son? What if it's the healing of your soul? What if it's becoming a part of a new Jew plus Gentile family that's multi-ethnic and global and historic? What if it's, above all, becoming a person of agape? Then this gospel would simply be an inadequate foundation upon which to build a life of discipleship that is conducive to deep healing and transformation. Second, the reformed gospel. This for sure should not go on the internet. And by the way, this label is not mine, okay? It's used by a number of Reformed or Calvinist preachers, denominations, and church planting organizations. They literally put the word Reformed in front of the word gospel. At a popular level, it sounds something like this. This is a popular level. God is a perfect, holy, just God of both love and wrath. You are morally guilty before him. God's demands must be kept. You cannot possibly do it but Jesus did it for you on the cross. Hallelujah. This, I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. I'm doing my best. This equates the preaching of the gospel with the preaching of a cluster of reformed doctrines, penal substitutionary atonement, a thing called imputed righteousness, and mainly justification. As Al Mulher Jr., the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, put it, justification by faith alone is not one doctrine among others. It is not merely one way of describing the gospel. It is the gospel. It's his language. Or here's John Piper, one of the most vocal advocates for this view in his book, God is the Gospel. I am thrilled to call justification the heart of the gospel. Now, to clarify, justification is not a Reformed doctrine. It's a New Testament doctrine, but it's not used nearly as much in the New Testament as people think. It's used one time by Jesus in all four Gospels, in the beautiful story in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the publican. It's used more by Paul, but contrary to what a lot of people realize, really only in two of his letters, Galatians and Romans. After that, it's used once by him in Philippians, and I believe once in 1 Corinthians, not at all in his other nine or 10 letters. And it's never, seriously, not at all. And it's never once used by John or Peter or the other New Testament authors, which is pretty strange if it, quote, is the gospel. And while justification is a New Testament word, the understanding of what justification means differs a little bit in church different church traditions and at different times in church history. What most just solid theologians would say is you have to have some humility when you talk about Jesus' death and resurrection, and you have to separate the fact of the atonement, 
1 Corinthians 15, Jesus Christ died on the cross you know, for my sins according to the scriptures, from theories of the atonement, attempts to understand how that death actually accomplished the forgiveness of sins and more. You have to separate those two, be really dogmatic about the first one, and have a fair bit of kind of humility and curiosity about the second. In the Reformed view, justification means, and this is my understanding of it, has, that Jesus has earned merit on our behalf through living a sinless, perfect life that we never could, and in the heavenly courtroom of a holy, just God, he has imputed that merit somehow over onto you, dying in your place, so that you are now declared righteous. That's what the word justified means. It's a little tricky in English. It means to declare righteous. You are declared righteous in God's eyes by sheer grace, not by any works, not by anything you have done, just by the unearned favor of God, not by your own merit. Because of Jesus' death, you are justified. It is just as if you never sinned, as the saying goes. Now, there's a more toxic version of this that comes from the hyper-masculine fringe of the Reformed Church that comes off a bit like you're so evil and God is so mad at you that he had to kill his son Jesus. A growing number of people have been traumatized by this toxic gospel that is more, I would argue, pagan than Christian in that God is akin to an angry tyrant in the sky, but he kind of has a nice side, so he killed his son instead of you. This is not the serious Christian view that you see in the best of the Reformed tradition, but there's enough of it out there in pop culture that I simply must say, John 3.16 is very clear that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, not that he so hated the world that he gave his one and only son. This is a crucial distinction because the gospel isn't just about what God has done, but about who God is. Part of the good news is that God isn't Zeus or Apollo. He isn't an angry tyrant in the sky. Doesn't mean he's not wrathful, more on that in a minute. But he's more like a parent, the father or a mother even of utter, self-giving, generous, joyful, creative love. He is not like Zeus or Apollo. He is like Jesus. But even if you just take the best versions of the Reformed gospel, and there are some Reformed preachers that I deeply respect and quote on a regular basis, Similar to the evangelical gospel, the problem is less that it's wrong and more that it's too small, or as N.T. Wright would say, they put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> Here's Daryl Bach, a New Testament scholar from a conservative seminary. Quote, most gospel presentations I hear focus often exclusively on the cross. The gospel is set forth primarily, if not exclusively, as a transaction to be experienced in a moment of time. To believe or to exercise faith is to trigger the transaction and fulfill the gospel. Now, what makes this tricky is that there is a transaction that is a part of the gospel, and that allows us to experience God's good news. However, there is more to this gospel. Now, there's a lot of good stuff, and I want to be really careful to point out the good in the Reformed gospel, starting with its emphasis on the cross. You see something similar in Paul's writings, where the cross becomes what theologians call, I believe the pronunciation is a syncope, a part that stands in for the whole, such as the expression, you know, 50 head of cattle, which doesn't just mean like 50 heads. It means 50, all of the cattle. For Paul, the cross doesn't just mean Jesus' death. It means all of Jesus' life and his work. The Reformed tradition also has a sophisticated view of moral guilt, which our generation is sorely lacking, and it has a means to deal with that guilt, which our generation is also sorely lacking in the honor-shame culture of social media. It's also not scared to talk about God's wrath, which is all over scripture, and it rightly sees God's wrath, for the most part, as an expression of his love, the fierceness of a parent toward a wayward child, emotionally offended yet deeply invested in their good, which is a much-needed counterbalance to the liberal Portland-esque redefinition of God's love as a kind of lazy tolerance that is okay with whatever as long as people are basically nice. Nonetheless, I think there are some massive issues with this gospel. The main one being, again, you're hard-pressed to find it in Jesus' teaching. 
He used the word, as I said, justification one time, and he simply did not go around beating up on self-effort or what would be called workspace righteousness. When he used the phrase good works, it wasn't a pejorative. He like, actually thought that good works are good, not like bad. He actually thought they were good. And there's a bizarre twist there where somehow good works have become bad. Not to Jesus, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Can you imagine Jesus ending the Sermon on the Mount with you know, that famous climax? Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man, but whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, or that can be translated, depending on your version of the Bible, does not do what they say, or can be translated, does not obey them. It's like a foolish person who built their house on the sand, rains came, blew against that house, and it fell with a very great crash. That's the ending of his sermon. Can you imagine if he said, but don't worry, I know you're all scared right now, you, don't, you don't, don't worry, I'm about to do all of it for you. You don't actually need to do a thing because that's workspace righteousness and it's dangerous. Make sure you're not earning your way to God. It's unimaginable that Jesus would ever say something like this. But the main problem is, again, discipleship. This interpretation of justification, and there are very intelligent scholars that have done a lot of work to push back on this, but it defines works in Paul's writings as self-effort in general. And then it equates self-effort with earning, which I think is a non-starter. Willard used to say, grace isn't opposed to effort, but to earning. Don't confuse and conflate those two ideas. The great danger with this gospel is, again, it can sabotage our discipleship because following Jesus is something you do. And if you're constantly told it's not about what we do, it's about what God has done for us, you can end up with a very passive version of Christian spirituality that has a high view of Christ, which I applaud, but a low view of apprenticeship to Christ. The Christ who tells us to do things constantly, the New Testament that is full of commands and even demands on our moral and social lives. Much has been said about the rise of consumer Christianity in recent decades in the US. Much less has been said about its possible connection to the way the gospel has been preached. Either as cheap grace, a kind of put your hand up for a ticket to heaven, as in the evangelical gospel, or as in a Jesus did it all, you don't have to do anything. Sadly, this can produce consumers of Jesus' merit rather than disciples of Jesus' way. Okay, let's move faster now that you all hate me. Number three, the prosperity gospel. This is my personal favorite that I wish was true. Also called the health, and I'm a little bit less of the angry God in the sky and a little bit more of the pastor with the bends out front. That sounds great. Also called health and wealth, or word of faith, or seed faith, it is a relative newcomer to the scene in the last century. The incredibly prestigious online academic journal, Wikipedia, defines it as, I feel like it's okay now to use Wikipedia, a religious belief among some Protestant Christians, and it's best understood as an offshoot of Pentecostalism, that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them. The atonement is interpreted to include the alleviation of sickness and poverty, which are viewed as curses to be broken by faith. This is believed to be achieved through donations of money, visualization, and positive confection. The popular version sounds something like this. God loves you. He's for you. You are his child. You are royalty. You're made in the image of God. Through his death and his resurrection, he won the victory. His victory is your inheritance by faith, victory over sickness, over poverty, and over failure. The best is yet to come, and your breakthrough is on the way. The leading scholar in the world on the prosperity gospel is Dr. Kate Bowler from Duke. In her book, Blessed, she has four markers of the prosperity gospel, faith, health, wealth, and victory. She divides it into two kind of camps, hard prosperity and soft prosperity. Hard prosperity is the original version from a generation or two ago. It's more heretical, it has full-on false teaching in it, and therefore it was always more fringe. It uses language like if you ever hear the language of the law of the tithe or the law of first fruits. And there's usually a very blatant kind of, if you give God $100, he'll give you back $1,000 kind of thing, which is a flagrant con for the most part from televangelists and con artists in the name of Jesus. 
but hard prosperity was mostly discredited through the televangelist scandals of the 80s and 90s, such as Jimmy Baker and others. It's still around in like a Creflo dollar, if you know people like that, like selling COVID hankies or whatever online. It's still out there, but it's still fringe. In its place since the 80s and 90s has come soft prosperity, which is less heretical, if at all. Often it's just kind of atheological. You can't even say this is theologically wrong about it. It's more therapeutic. It's more focused on principles for emotional health and relational flourishing and kind of material success. It's more mainstream in its culture. Tons of celebrities involved. This is where a lot of the celebrity pastor world is. It's very Hollywood-ish and kind of cool. Studies show that 17% of Americans identify with the prosperity gospel. And in churches over, and half, this is an interesting stat, half of churches over 10,000 people preach the prosperity gospel. Those who preach it often gain fabulous wealth. Costi Hinn in his memoir, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, about growing up working for his uncle, Benny Hinn, who's kind of the old school version, said growing up in the Hinn family empire was like belonging to some hybrid of the royal family and the mafia. Our lifestyle was lavish, our loyalty was enforced, and our version of the gospel was big business. Though Jesus Christ was still a part of our gospel, he was more of a mag magic genie than the king of kings. Rubbing him the right way by giving money and having enough faith would unlock your spiritual inheritance. God's goal was not his glory, but our gain. His grace was not to set us free from sin, but to make us rich. The abundant life he offered wasn't eternal, it was now we lived the prosperity gospel." Again, let me attempt a gracious interpretation of what's good about this. It's emphasis on a loving God who is for you, even through hardship. It's faith that God can do miracles, that this is an open universe, not a closed system, that God can come in and do the miraculous in your life. It's holistic view of the gospel and of human flourishing. Prosperity churches have often been very quick to start a wide array of social services and social transformation in poor neighborhoods. They've also been on the forefront of the multi-ethnic church from the very beginning. So there's good in here. What's wrong is, again, it is simply not the gospel that Jesus preached, and it's literally the exact opposite of the life that Jesus lived. And it sets people up for disillusionment to say as the popular, this is so popular, I hear it all the time, the best is yet to come. Tell that to Paul and the apostles and the millions of like, Christian martyrs who all like, died after they were tortured for their faith in Jesus. The best is yet to come. If by best... You mean becoming a person of agape as defined by Jesus primarily through suffering, and yet to come, you mean, if not in this life, then in the life to come. That statement is 100% true. <laughs> but if by best you mean health, wealth, success, up and to the right, material well-being, and yet to come you mean like some kind of linear between now and when you die, first off, that's heresy. Secondly, that is not even, that is an illusion, that is like you are living in la-la land. It's not even remotely grounded in reality, much less in the gospel of Jesus, whose life was marked by what theologians call a spirituality of descent. His life was not up and to the right. It was all the way down to the pit of hell, trusting God to resurrect him from the dead. The gospel here is often guilty of baptizing the worst of American culture, namely materialism, and in doing so, leading people to greater bondage in their emotional attachment to things rather than freedom. On that note, last but not least, the social gospel, also known as the liberation gospel. This would, I would argue, be the most popular in Portland. This gospel sits inside an essentially soft Marxist worldview that sees all of human history as a struggle for power between oppressed and oppressor and views most relationships through the grid of power dynamics. Inside this kind of framework, it sounds something like this. Jesus was a political revolutionary who came to liberate the poor and marginalized from the hierarchy of oppression. He was killed as a threat to the status quo of empire but he inaugurated a kingdom of peace and justice and equality. America is the latest iteration in a long line of empires. Jesus is on the march now as he was then to stand up against those who abuse power and to liberate those on the margins, such as the poor, the immigrant and refugee, the BIPOC community, the LGBTQ community, and many more. The church's role is essentially an activist role to move America toward a progressive and social, socialist political model. Now, let me point out what I really like about this view. For starters, it uses the language of kingdom 
It's like we're one for four at this point, which is great. And it understands that the kingdom isn't about us going to heaven, but heaven coming to us. It understands that you can't separate the preaching of the gospel from the demonstration of the gospel, which is our next practice. It has a sophisticated view not only of individual sin, but of institutional sin, something that evangelicals, bizarrely, for all of the emphasis on sin, struggle to get their head around. And I love its emphasis on the dignity of all people, its courage to call out racism, sexism, classism, militarism, even in the church. It is a great reminder of how Jesus radically subverted the world's models of power. But again, there are all sorts of problems with this gospel. For starters, if Jesus' message, if the kingdom was primarily political, as in having to do with the earthly kingdoms, one, why didn't he go to Rome? Why in the world did he stay not only in Israel, but up in the north of Israel, in the Galilee of all places? And two, why does his approach toward politics seem, and it was a politically loaded time he was living through, why does his approach seem to be, as some scholars have put it, intentional indifference? He simply refused to engage in the political activism of his day. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And three, whatever Jesus was, he was simply not a progressive by the current moral definition of the word. You have to separate the political, like size of government conversation, which I think is very abiblical, from the moral conversation about the definition of human personhood or sexuality or gender or whatever it is. Jesus, I mean, arguably, is, his teachings on sexuality in particular are arguably the most conservative of any teacher in all of Scripture. He was a celibate Jewish rabbi. And one of the main problems with the social gospel is its long-running compromise with theological liberalism. If you know kind of the origin story, you can trace it back to early 1900s New York City, where there was a growing schism in the church between conservatives who emphasized the individual aspects of the atonement, like the evangelical and the reformed churches, and liberals from mainline churches who emphasized the institutional and said, you're missing the picture, it's big, the gospel is bigger than you think, and they were right. A pastor named Walter Rosenbusch coined the phrase social gospel, and at his church in Hell's Kitchen, in a noble attempt to call out the way many Christians in his city had just accepted social evils such as child labor. But sadly, in his kind of redefinition of the gospel, he also denied the atonement, the Bible is scripture, basic kind of Christian orthodoxy. It's very interesting. I remember I was on a walk with our mutual friend, John Tyson, and Rauschenbusch's original church, where he coined the phrase social gospel, where this idea came from, was right around the corner from the church that Tyson is a pastor of. And it's empty now, but you can still see his name and the date of the building of the church it, like carved into the brick on the bottom. And it's a fascinating story behind this church. The church died out a few years after, or in a few decades after preaching that. In the 70s, the building became a gay nightclub where they would literally hold orgies on the altar. And it's since, and then when the neighborhood changed, it's since become kind of been converted into a small theater for the performing arts. And that's an interesting story of that building because the track record is, and do not take my word for us, is like basic knowledge, it's out there everywhere, that basically as a church goes liberal, it dies. That is the common pattern. It is just a matter of time. When it goes liberal, it signs its death sentence. I don't mean, again, liberal as in politics. I mean at a moral or a theological level. The social gospel also has a track record for leaving a trail of burnout in its wake, in its noble participation in political activism, much of which we should praise and link arms with. Left unchecked, that can become, as our reformed friends would say, a kind of salvation by works. But again, the main problem here is that the gospel does not require discipleship to Jesus at a holistic level because it equates discipleship with political activism. Now, lecture over. Thank you for your patience. A few closing thoughts. Question is, which of the four gospels do you find yourself believing at times? It's likely whichever one made you feel the most emotional whether you were feeling anxiety or anger or guilt or shame or I have no idea. My pastoral read is that a lot of our church grew up with the evangelical or reformed gospels. Some of you were traumatized by it a little bit, by the abuses of them, and you're moving toward the prosperity or social gospels via the proverbial pendulum. But the answer to one distortion of the gospel isn't another distortion of the gospel. It's rediscovering Jesus' gospel. And every generation has to do this. 
your children, our children will have to do this. Our grandchildren will have to do this. We have to do the hard work to think and pay attention and read and go to the source that is Jesus to disentangle the gospel from its cultural trappings lest contextualization over time become compromised with the right or the left. The goal is to uncover what, again, Professor Daryl Bach called the lost gospel, not referring to like a Gnostic gospel of Thomas from the third century, but to the gospel of Jesus in the New Testament and let it recapture our heart and recenter our life. So our practice for the week ahead is all up at practicingtheway.org, preaching the gospel. Week one is just a very kind of two-part practice. One is just have a discussion with your Bridgetown community about your definition of the gospel. Not like a theology test, like what's your definition? And somebody's there to like take notes and critique, you know, at all. It's sometimes it's good to like get yourself to kind of attempt to articulate the gospel as you understood it or as you grew up with it. And then maybe compare and contrast that with the gospel of Jesus from last week or the four American gospels from this morning. And then two, and even more importantly, um, the idea for the practice, and again, this is all like voluntary. We just make suggestions. You have to decide if you want to do it or not. But our practice for you is just pick one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and read it over the coming week or month, and just let it kind of open your heart to the love and the beauty of Jesus, and let it, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, start to shape your working definition of the Gospel. As Henry Nouwen once said, take the gospel each day and spend 10 minutes with it. Read it and read it again. Walk into the world with the gospel in your heart. The gospel word of the day can become like a painting on the walls of the inner room that is your heart. You have chances every second to live this word, but it has to be in you. It can't just be an idea. It has to sink from the mind into the heart. So that's the idea. As we end, you know, last week we pointed out that the original title of the Gospels was Evangelion Kata Matthew or Mark or Luke or the Gospel according to Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, which of course raises a very interesting question. What is the Gospel according to you? All of us, religious or not, serious disciples of Jesus or nominal Christians, all of us base our lives on some kind of a gospel, some kind of a message of life, what life is actually about, what the good life is, salvation, where we put our hope for the present and the future to fulfill our deepest desires for human flourishing in our soul and our society. It could be that the gospel of Jesus, or it could, it could be the gospel of Jesus that you believe or I believe, or it could be the gospel of open mobility or career success or this identity or that identity or this vision of government or that vision of government, the gospel of the left or the right, or it could be any number of things, the gospel of career. Put another way, who or what are you looking for to for your salvation and for life? And the gospel that you live in is the gospel that you live out. This is Jesus' gospel that God has come in Jesus. He is present now, active and at work in human history and in your own life through Jesus and by the Spirit. We can repent. We can revise our plans for living around this cosmic opportunity to daily experience the inner love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and let them heal us and not just transact in heaven, but transform us to be more like God himself from the inside out. And to begin, all we have to do is exactly what Jesus said, come and follow me.